0: This is HeartStock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Today, our guest is Diana Martin. In just a moment, she will be with us and tell you all about Rodale Institute. In the meantime, remember that you can find us on social media, and you can also email us at heartstockradio at gmail.com. Just a moment, Diana will be with us. This is HeartStock. Thanks for listening. This land was made for you and me. You're listening to Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Cart Grant is in the studio. Today, our guest is Diana Martin, and she is the Director of Communications at Rodell Institute. Hi, Diana. How are you?
1: I'm doing so well. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Carol.
0: Indeed. And can you give our listeners a little intro? What is Rodale Institute?
1: Rodale Institute, we're a nonprofit organization and we've been focused on growing the organic agriculture movement for almost 75 years. So we were founded back in the 1940s and our motto has been ever since. Healthy soil equals healthy food equals healthy people. So we're really focused on healing people and the planet through changing our food system. And we do that with uh, really interesting research projects through farmer training and through consumer education. Are you at all in any way affiliated with Rodale Press? We are. So we have the same founder. Our founder is J.I. Rodale who uh, he he started doing some experiments with organic farming back in the 1930s and 40s. And he actually wrote about them through his publications. So he started magazines like Organic Farming and Gardening, magazines like Prevention. And that's actually one of the ways that he helped to grow the organic movement. Um, Ultimately, Rodale Press grew to a number of titles like Men's Health and Runner's World, bicycling, and was sold uh, just a few years ago to Hearst. Um, But the Rodale Institute, we're the nonprofit arm. We've been going strong for 75 years, and we really focus on that organic farming research. And what was it that motivated
0: your founder? I would imagine there's a story behind all that.
1: He was really on a lifelong quest to improve his own health. He grew up kind of sickly in New York City and he really actually, he made his um, fortune through an electrical manufacturing company and he was able to grow that company and move it out to Pennsylvania. And when he did, he wanted to move on to a farm. He really wanted to grow his own food for his family to help improve their health. And this was right at the time that chemicals started entering agriculture. In the 1940s is when we started using DDT, which is a pesticide. Um, we started launching right after World War II into the Green Revolution, bringing synthetic fertilizers onto the farm. And... Uh, J.I. Rodale he wasn't a farmer. So um, when he was learning to farm, he was calling up his, you know, local extension, which in our area is Penn State. And they started telling him about all these inputs. And he was really concerned. He said, you know, how are these chemicals going to impact my health? That's, I'm trying to grow food so I can get healthier and get my family healthier. So he kind of had that outsider's perspective, and he was really concerned about the long-term effects of chemicals coming into agriculture to our our health and the environment. And really, at first, he actually just wanted to give money to other universities to study this topic. And people kind of turned him down. They were they were thinking, you know, this is the future of farming. This is modern agriculture. So he basically set off alone um, on this quest that he wanted some answers and he started experimenting with organic gardening and composting and farming in his own backyard and just writing about it through the pages of organic gardening and prevention. And he kind of started a movement of just backyard gardeners and growers who started looking for natural food that was uh, not using chemicals and you know, fast forward 75 years later, the organic movement is now a $55 billion industry in the United States. We have more than 17,000 certified organic farms in the U.S. So he kind of started started this revolution of, of questioning chemicals and agriculture in his own backyard, and it's grown into this national and international movement.
0: And where you're located there in Pennsylvania, it's... Well known for its Mennonite colonies. How has this impacted your work? I mean, aside from just kind of basking in all of it, it's a a beautiful sight to see those huge teams of horses plowing through the soil, um, just like the good old days.
1: So, yeah, I actually live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is famous for Amish country and our headquarters of Rodale Institute are in Kutztown, Pennsylvania, but we, we've actually opened satellites more recently in California, Iowa, Georgia, so we're we're kind of all over the U.S. But yeah, my family is actually, um, my dad was raised Mennonite, so my uh, my whole dad's side of the family is Mennonite, so it's also a big culture that I identify with. And I think it really has. It's actually one of the reasons why Pennsylvania is so strong in organic agriculture. Uh, just the county that I live in, in Lancaster, we have over 300 certified organic farms, which is pretty unique compared to other places of the country. It's sort of a hotbed for organic agriculture, and I think one of the reasons is because we we still have a lot of small family farms. Uh, we're sort of home of the the postage stamp farm. And for a lot of these small family farms, they really just can't make it in conventional agriculture. There's just the profit margins are so slim now with industrial, chemical and conventional farming that if you're just a small family farm, it's really hard to make it. And a lot of those farms have actually transitioned to organic where they can get a price premium, they can connect more with consumers who are looking for their product. And it's really one of the ways that they're staying profitable and staying in business.
0: And how about you, Diana? What, what was your path that led to this work? Um, where did you go to school? Uh, I would imagine just growing up in Lancaster and having uh, a father that was raised Mennonite impacted your, your choices.
1: Yeah, it's interesting how much our family has changed just in a couple of generations. I'm um, the tenth generation of my family to live here in Lancaster and, you know, my grandfather grew up farming, producing, you know, vegetables and corn and tobacco and really we we became pretty removed from agriculture in just two generations. My my dad was the first person in his family to go to college the farm where my grandfather was farming became paved over. There's a Target sitting on it. There's a Panera sitting on it today. And, you know, we kind of went from a family that was canning produce and eating from the garden and eating fresh and local and seasonal to uh, just in two generations, a family that was eating processed foods and Lunchables and Sunny D and all the crazy stuff that was coming out in the 90s. And I think that's probably a story that a lot of people can resonate with. And I didn't think a lot about farming growing up or really our food system. I went to school to study journalism. I went to Syracuse. I've always been really passionate about communications. And I came out, I was working in the nonprofit world doing communications. And kind of two things happened. I Personally, I, my health was being impacted by not really knowing a lot about, uh, health and nutrition. I just didn't feel good because of the food that I was eating. And I also, um, took some time. I quit my job. I decided to go on a backpacking trip around the world. And I just kind of took off with just myself and my backpack. And I was able to, um, travel to all these amazing places. And I, really was always impassionate about environmental issues, but to actually kind of see what was happening on a global scale. I went to Australia. I talked to Australians who were talking about the coral reef bleaching. I went to Indonesia. I got to talk with, you know, people about the rainforest getting cut down for palm oil. I went to India. When I was in India, it was 115 degrees. They had this huge heat wave and thousands of people died. And when I came back, I was, you know, what and doing what any person in their 20s um, who needed a place to live and needed a job did. I started wolfing. I worked on an organic farm. And I think that was where these two things kind of really connected the dots for me that. I needed to heal my own health and I needed to do that through changing my diet, not just what I eat, but also thinking about how that food was produced. And when I was working on this organic farm, I realized I can heal myself through supporting this organic food system. But it also connected the dots for me of all these environmental travesties I saw happening all around the world and that we can actually also heal our planet through how we farm and the food system that we support. So that's what got me really passionate about organic agriculture. It really just connects the dots in so many big picture picture issues our society is facing and I quickly realized I wasn't going to be a farmer myself. So I did the next best thing. I, I came to Rodale Institute, where um, I'm helping to kind of spread awareness and education and resources to grow the organic movement.
0: Why is it that um, in spite of having this huge abundance in some places, others are going hungry? Where did we go wrong here? <laughs> some, something, something's not happening that probably should.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's a great question. And it's one of the things that, um, you know, conventional agriculture or chemical agriculture, it, it's, they often kind of hold up this banner that we have to use these um, destructive methods and toxic chemicals to feed the world. And you know, if that's the measure that we're looking at, then chemical agriculture is really failing because we're not feeding the world, um, even though we're producing enough food to, to feed one and a half times the global population. And we're, we're using our resources rapidly um, and we're not even improving the health of people. Um, you know, as we've created this abundance of food in places like the U.S., We see actually a lot of what we're growing is going to biofuels or going to feed for livestock is going to create cheap, highly processed foods that are creating these long term health effects like diabetes and obesity. So I think if we want to get back to really feeding the world, we need to do that with localized and regionalized food systems that are resilient to extreme weather through the climate crisis. We have to do that by building healthy soils. We have to do that by dedicating more of our farmland to actually growing nutrient dense food like fruits and vegetables, nuts. We have to really rethink agriculture policy so that our policy is supporting farmers and supporting our vulnerable eaters. How do we match those people up to make sure that we're giving markets to farmers while pro- providing healthiest food to the people who need access to it the most? And I think, you know, we're going to keep seeing because of the climate crisis, more and more extreme weather events that's going to put the food supply in jeopardy. And we have to figure out how we can work globally in those disaster situations to make sure we have the infrastructure on the ground to keep people fed as we we keep dealing with the climate crisis.
0: Yes, and what I'm hoping we can do is talk more about the soil because there's an awful lot that can be done in that regard. But we will take a little break here and we will be right back with Diana Martin. This is Heartstock. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy. Today we are speaking with Diana Martin of Rodale Institute. And Diana, what I was hoping is you could, and we you know, we've talked about this a little bit before in the past, the link between soil, dirt, <laughs> and climate, climate change. Can you help us understand why this is so important?
1: Yeah, I think I'm one of the few people who get super excited talking about soil. um people people don't really think much about the ground under their feet. Like you said, people just kind of think of it as dirt, but the soil is actually alive. You know, this healthy soil is just teeming with bacteria and fungi and nematodes and earthworms. And there's so much life underground, actually to the point that just one teaspoon of healthy soil has more living things than people on the planet. And unfortunately we've been really degrading our soils. To the point that the UN says we have about 60 years of farmable topsoil remaining, we've degraded about a third of the world's soils. And we've done that primarily over the past hundred years as we've been relying on industrial agriculture that's been harming that soil through practices like monocropping, through using chemical inputs, through using excessive tillage. And the soil plays a really important role in the natural world. So, our soils one thing that's really important about our soils is it actually can take carbon, which is a greenhouse gas emission um, that's contributing to the climate crisis, and we can actually sequester that carbon or lock that carbon into our soils. we do that through the power of plants, um, just the same way that we, um, a tree can take carbon dioxide and store the carbon underground and release the oxygen. That's what we can do with plants all across the globe through farming and agriculture. So if we're building healthy soil, we can use it as a tool to start to mitigate and really start to reverse the climate crisis. And healthy soils, they they just have so many other added benefits. For example, during heavy rainfall events, they can act as a sponge and absorb that water instead of just having it run off and have erosion. And that actually, when our healthy soils can have the nutrients they need, have the water they need, they can support the plants so that we can still grow food as we have extreme weather like drought and flooding. So healthy soil is going to be an absolute key to be be able to continue to feed our growing population and to start to mitigate and reverse the climate crisis.
0: Can you break this down into some real nuts and bolts of projects and efforts that you've had at Rodell Institute? Can you share with us some of what you've, what the success that you've had and changes that you've been able to make?
1: Uh, Yeah, I'd love to. So maybe I'll try to highlight um, one or two efforts from each of the areas that we focus on, which are the research, farmer training, and consumer education. A lot of people know Rodale Institute for our research. We have some really famous long-term research trials including the Farming Systems Trial, which is celebrating its 40th year this year. So that's a pretty big milestone. And in that research project, we compare organic versus conventional farming side by side. And we've learned a lot in those 40 years. We've learned that the organic system can build soil health. It can be more profitable for farmers. It can use less energy and less water. It sequesters carbon. Basically, we've used that trial to prove that organic can feed the world in a way that uses less resources. The cutting-edge areas that we're looking at with our research now, we're really interested in connecting the dots between soil health and human health. So a big focus of our research now is focused on things like nutrient density. How can we grow more nutrient-dense food? And we've been doing newer trials like the Vegetable Systems Trial where we compare organic versus conventional produce, we also have a watershed impact trial where we're comparing the differences of how we farm and the impact on clean water and our drinking water. So, those are a couple of our our research projects we have going on, and we basically we take that research and we want it to have change in the real world. So we use that research to help farmers who want to transition to organic, and to help consumers understand how they can support organic farmers in the marketplace and we're doing that now we uh i mentioned we've opened these satellite centers in iowa california and georgia where we're doing more regionalized research and we're also in the ground on the ground in these farming communities with uh, crop consulting services so we have services where we work one-on-one with farmers who want to transition to organic. And really help make sure that they're successful and they have a mentor all along the way that's been doing this for, you know, seven decades. So we focus a lot on that. And uh, on the consumer side, we've actually been part of a new initiative called the Regenerative Organic Certification. It's a new high bar label for food and fiber that actually goes a step above and beyond organic. Um, we've been working on that with some partners like Patagonia and Dr. Bronner's, and that includes really high standards uh, for soil health, animal welfare, and also farmer and worker fairness, which is something that's been uh, pretty much left out of the organic movement until now.
0: Yes. Can you talk more about that? I mean, it's um, <laughs> this all ties into some of the debates, the current political debates around immigration because uh, certain places, especially in California, the whole agricultural system depends upon folks that come and uh, migrate from place to place to harvest. There's just some crops, there's no way it can be done mechanically. Are you looking at that link? And it gets complicated.
1: Yeah. So that's, I think for a lot of people in the organic movement, it's been sort of a a disappointment that the the fair trade part's been kind of left out of the organic of the organic seal. So when you buy something that's certified organic, um, of course you know it's grown without gmos or synthetic chemicals or fertilizers and without antibiotics or growth hormones, but um, you don't you don't want to buy something that's certified organic and then find out it was produced with child labor in another country. For us, we always really felt that um, you kind of hear this this new word regenerative cropping up a lot in food and agriculture. And that's a word that we've been using at Rodale Institute for a couple decades. And for us, we always felt that um, we want a food system that's regenerative and organic, that it's organic in the sense that we're not using chemical inputs, but it's regenerative in the sense that It's actually improving our resources, improving the land, improving uh, even the communities that are part of this type of agriculture. So that was why we wanted to work on this regenerative organic certification. When you buy something with that label, you know that every living thing in that farm system, from the soil microbe to the animals to the people and the farm workers, were treated with care and respect, had safe working conditions, were making living wages. And that's that was really a big, I think, inspiration behind working on that certification. And it's actually one of the reasons why I really care about buying organic, because the people who are most impacted by spraying pesticides are the farmers and workers in the field who are directly exposed to them, who are having seeing incredibly high rates of Diseases like Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, whose children who are often in those farming communities are seeing higher rates of uh, immune disorders. Um, So, I think if you care about farm workers, one way to do that is to support the regenerative organic certification or make sure that they're in safe working conditions, getting paid living wages, and aren't being exposed to toxic agrochemical uh, pesticides. And from the consumer side, I mean, there's
0: just no way that this could be growing as it has if consumers weren't becoming aware. Do you have anything to share about that aspect or words of advice for consumers who do see organic is is better?
1: It's definitely consumers are having such a big difference in this movement Really, it's consumer demand that's growing the organic movement. We About 5% of the food that we eat today in the United States is organic. It's higher with things like produce. About 14% of the produce we eat is organic. Um, but only 1% of our farmland in the U.S. is organic. So it's actually the farmland that's lagging behind the consumer demand. I think it'll grow more as these generations that are coming into the consumer marketplace and they, they really are having a difference. It's what's capturing farmers' attention and getting them to switch their practices. Hmm.
0: Indeed. And what lays ahead? What, what do we have look, to look forward to?
1: I think some of the exciting stuff in the future is making more connections between how our food is produced and our health. I know that's something that we're really interested in at Rodale Institute. We're actually hosting our first cohort of medical professionals at the farm this fall will will be training medical doctors on things like organic farming and soil health and nutrition they'll be out in the fields learning how food is grown as we're trying to make more connections with the healthcare community so that's something that I'm really passionate about and I'm also really excited that I think on the in the policy space more politicians are starting to realize that we can use healthy soil and regenerative organic farming as a stopgap measure, as a solution to start battling the climate crisis. So I think we're going to be incentivizing more healthy soil and healthy farming in the policy space as we tackle that issue. So I think that that's something that's positive.
0: By incentivizing, just changing Tax structure. I mean, right now, a a lot of our agricultural systems depend on supplemental payments from the government. So it's um, essentially—I don't know—a lot of folks would call it farmer welfare. But uh, not to (laughs) not to get too far off into the weeds here. But how can we how how can we incentivize this change? What's the best way to do it?
1: I think. Consumers need to keep supporting regenerative organic farmers, but really, we also need to put the pressure on brands to be transparent about their supply chains, that brands should be supporting farmers who are growing in this way and not greenwashing their efforts. And I think we have to keep the pressure on our politicians to not just keep putting all of our farm subsidies into, you know, pushing farmers to monocrop GMO corn and soybeans that are just sprayed with glyphosate and that take chemical inputs. That's really what we're using our tax dollars for right now. Mm -hmm. I'd love to see a shift to incentivize more local and regional farming, support more farming that actually grows healthy food like vegetables, fruits, nuts for our communities that incentivize farmers to, to support soil health by maybe even offering um, carbon credits for capturing that carbon. And we need a lot more support for organic farming in this country, more support for organic, um, organic research, and then also infrastructure on the ground. So um, that could look like things like more organic processing facilities. Um and just to give an example, in in Europe, they actually subsidize farmers to transition to organic and to go through that three-year transition period. That's awesome.
0: Where in the US, we, we're just we're kind of running out of time, but I think that's there are examples of other countries speeding the transition, which is awesome. How can listeners find you, Diana?
1: So we have a lot of resources on our website at rodaleinstitute.org for anyone who's interested in learning more about what organic is and how it relates to uh, your health or the planet. So I definitely, um, those are resources that are available for anyone. And you can also find us on all the social medias at Rodale Institute.
0: Thank you so much for sharing your story and um, yeah, the work. It's awesome.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much for having me on and just really thrilled to talk about uh, how we can fix our food system.
0: Indeedy. This is Heartstock. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and we shall be back next week. See you then. Peace.
1: Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org. This